of our brothers and sisters. I know some of you are standing, some of you are seated. If you're seated, why don't you stand up one more time if you're able. Those of you that are watching with us, worshiping with us online, we welcome you this morning. And let's sturdy ourselves here, gather ourselves up for a moment as we begin to open the scriptures this morning. We want to take our faith on our lips and say it one more time together. So let's say it with faith in our hearts this morning. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Jesus the Lord, we welcome you. Jesus the Lord, we welcome you. Spirit of the living God, we welcome you. Father of all, we welcome your presence here. We thank you that we are your people. We're called by your name. We thank you that you have plans and purposes for us that are greater than our own plans and purposes for ourselves. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. We thank you that the scriptures are not just a record of what you've done, but they are living words of God gathered up by the living word himself and delivered over to us faithfully each time we open them. And so we pray that the scripture would be living word for us this morning. We ask that we be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. We ask that the powers of the age to come would wash over us again. We ask that the spirit would fill us again. We ask that we would be renewed and strengthened again as the body of Christ again. And we ask that we would be offered one more time as an acceptable praise unto the Father one more time. Do it again this morning. We're asking for the miracle working power of God in this space this morning. Grant it, we pray. We say, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Revelation chapter 11. John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and I was told... Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. 
And if anybody tries to harm them, fire comes out from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anybody who wants to harm them must die. And they have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. And now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. Uh, welcome to positive and encouraging New Life East. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. It gets better, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and even refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a miracle takes place. <laughs> this, by the way, is our faith. That after three days, a miracle takes place. Okay? After three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters into these two prophetic figures. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified, and they gave glory. Everybody say, gave glory. Gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said. We've seen in Revelation so much so far. We've seen Jesus unveiled. We've seen uh, the great throne room of heaven, the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne. We've seen the Lamb taking the scroll from his right hand and opening it. We've seen devastation and judgment. And what we saw through the first nine or so uh, chapters of Revelation was that in spite of the fact that all of this judgment is taking place on planet Earth, did it cause a change of heart in the people that experienced the judgment? No, it didn't. By the time we get to the end of chapter 9, judgment has been ratcheted up on planet Earth. Pain is like taken up to a fever pitch on planet Earth. And we read that nobody is repenting of it. And so in chapter 10, this divine messenger comes down from heaven, a mighty angel who really is a Christ figure. I actually think it's Jesus himself. And he puts one, his right foot in the sea and his left foot on the land. And he's holding a little scroll in his hand. And John hears a voice saying, take that little scroll. That scroll represents the mystery of God accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. John is told to take the scroll from his right hand and to eat it. Do you remember this? The text says in, jo in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 9, So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Do you remember this from last week? We talked about how when you eat the gospel, what happens is it's good on your lips. It tastes good. It, it makes you strong. And at the same time, it turns your stomach sour. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, it turned my stomach sour. In other words, when we're captured by the goodness of God and we look out at a world that knows not God, that's walking in sin and wickedness and ugliness... It causes something to buckle and to quake in us. And that's what happens to John. He's sickened to his stomach by what he sees happening on planet Earth. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That's where we ended in chapter 10. 
Now we're shifting gears into chapter 11 and we see a temple and two witnesses and all of this mayhem that takes place because of the witnesses. And it's tempting to think that now we've sort of pivoted into new subject matter. So there was chapter 10, the delivery of the gospel that John takes into his being. Now we're starting to talk about something else, okay? But I want to suggest to you this morning that we're not talking about something else this morning. That what chapter 11 is doing is it's deepening and broadening the picture that we saw in chapter 10. Does that make sense? So John is given a prophetic uh, commission. He's supposed to go and prophesy to many people's uh, nations, languages, and kings. I want to suggest to you that that picture of the prophetic task given to John is both broadened out and it's deepened. And I think that for three reasons. Let's look back down in the text. I think that in the first place, because of his reference to the temple of God, the temple of God, He's told to take a a reed like a measuring rod and go to measure the temple of God with the altar and its worshipers. Okay, first place, the temple of God. I think that what he's doing here is deliberately invoking Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. In Ezekiel, the city has been laid waste and Ezekiel begins to dream dreams one day of Jerusalem being rebuilt and a new temple being established in Jerusalem. He sees that taking place at the end of days, that God will reestablish his sacred space on planet earth. Well, by the time that we get to the New Testament, that sacred space is no longer conceived of as a physical structure anymore, is it? Come on, are you with me this morning? It's not. These aren't like rhetorical questions. I need you to talk to me a little bit. It's not conceived of as a physical space anymore, is it? How is the temple conceived in the New Testament? Who is the true temple in the New Testament? But Jesus, first of all, and then who else? The church. That's right. That's right. So Jesus actually said, tear down this temple. Remember this? This is in John. He says, tear down this temple, and in three days, what? I will build it back up again. The actual eschatological dwelling place of God is not a building built out of brick and mortar, but what is it? It's the living God himself in person, Jesus the Lord. And the Apostle Paul writes, to y'all's point over here, somebody over here said it, that the church is the temple of the living God. Paul writes the same thing. Good job, Jake. But Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with who? Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone and in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a what? Holy temple to the Lord. I I have news for you. There is not another temple coming that's going to replace the church. All right now we're meddling just a little bit. When John goes out to measure the temple he's not measuring something other than the church. Thank you ladies and gentlemen that's what he's doing. And so we see this picture in Revelation chapter 11 of the church. He's measuring out the church. That's the first thing. The second thing that leads me to believe that what's happening in 10 and then into 11 is an expansion of what's going on in 10 is that he talks about these two witnesses, these two witnesses. Look back down at verse 3. He says, I'm going to appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and if you have the text in front of you what does the text say they're the two olive trees and the two what else okay where else have we seen lampstands in the book of revelation 
Yeah, earlier, like Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And what are the lampstands in Revelation 2 and 3? What does it represent? It's the church. So these two prophetic figures are really a sampling of the whole church, okay? We're not pivoting away from the church. We're not pivoting away from the church. Brothers and sisters, we're not pivoting away from the church. Are you with me this morning? These are representatives of the prophetic function and task of the church. We still have here the whole people of God in mind. Part of the reason I also say that is because these two figures are modeled on Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. Look back down at the text. The scripture says that if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths, devours their enemies. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. If you know your Bibles, who does that sound like? That's Elijah. That's right. During the time that they're prophesied, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often. Who does that sound like? That's Moses. So we got Elijah and Moses, but it says that each of the prophets have both of those functions. Does that make sense? So we've like taken the figures of Moses and Elijah and we've blended them together and we've called them lampstands and the lampstands are the, come on now somebody, it's the church. You guys are doing so good. But then the third reason that I think that we're talking about the church here is because of these two little time signatures that are built into the text. The scripture says that the Gentiles will trample the holy city for 40 Two months. Now, I know it's Sunday morning, and I know y'all aren't mathematicians, but approximately how long is 42 months in terms of years? Three and how many? A half years. And then it says that these two witnesses are going to prophesy for how many days? 1,260 days. And if you divide that by 365, you have roughly what? Yeah, like three and a half years. What John's doing here is he's drawing something out of the book of Daniel Chapter 7 and verse 25, Daniel is describing a time of tribulation that's coming for the church. And he said that this beast who comes up from the earth will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. So this is a difficult time that's coming for a sample of God's people or all of God's people? Yeah, all of God's people. And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Another way to translate that is a year, two years, and half a year. How, many, how much does that equal, brothers and sisters? Three and a half years. That's right. This is all a very condensed way of saying that all of this is referring to the prophetic task that's given to the church. Are you with me this morning? When we telescope the images of the temple and the witnesses and that time stamp together, We see that it's the calling of the entire church to bear witness to Jesus, that is, to prophesy. Brothers and sisters, can I get an amen this morning? It's the task of the entire church, not just a small sample of people inside of the church, but it's the task of the entire church to prophesy, to tell the truth about Jesus. When I was growing up, we made a big deal about prophets, and we had prophetic types that would come through the church. I remember it when I was a kid, man, we always had prophet so-and-so was going to come and he was going to lead three days of revival, you know, and it was so exciting and we would have that person come and we just knew that there was a word from the Lord that they had for us, you know, and they would do altar calls and stuff and they would speak prophetic words over us and we always sort of lifted up the, the prophets are kind of up here on this pedestal and I do think that there are specific prophetic giftings that God gives to certain people in the church that part of what they do is they have 
the power of sight and they have the power of hearing and they have a special ability to speak the word of God directly into situations. I do believe that. But that does not mean that the rest of us are bereft of prophetic gift or responsibility. And you know why I say that? Because the Bible says it. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet looks ahead to the end of days and he says that in the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out my on all flesh. And the result of that is that your sons and your daughters will what? Okay, that, that, that's everybody, okay? But the whole church before the Lord is one gigantic prophetic individual in Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus Christ is the true Israel filled with the Spirit who prophesies. And as we are grafted into Jesus Christ, what happens to us? We become filled with the Holy Spirit. We are those who prophesy. Prophesying is not just about sort of receiving a special message over here about something that's going to happen in seven and a half years and all of that. It's the whole manner of our life together. John says it in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. At the end of the book, he says, At this I fell at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Or an old translation says that when we bear witness to Jesus, what it is is it is prophecy. Guys... In a world that knows not God, our living Jesus and speaking Jesus and bearing Jesus everywhere we go, it is a prophetic act. Can I get an amen this morning? It's not just reserved for special individuals, but it's for all of us. What we do is we're always bearing witness. We're always speaking the name of Jesus Christ into a world that knows not God. God, it's our whole task, our whole privilege, our whole calling. And when we think of the prophetic task of the church, we often think of great dramatic acts of opposing the powers that be and speaking the truth to them, you know? We think about Martin Luther King Jr. and all of the, all of the truth that he raised in the middle of the great racism of our country. Or we think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the great prophetic stand that he took against Nazi Germany. And you probably could name a whole bunch of figures that pop into your mind as prophetic figures. Think about uh, St. Patrick evangelizing the Irish way back when. Those were people that persecuted him. They had abused him. And the Lord called him to go right back and speak the truth. We think about acts like that. But I also want to suggest to you that it's what we do in our life together that bears witness to Jesus Christ. And think about a couple at New Life North, one of the great couples that I know. They're Rich and Becky Caldwell. They're members of our church Forever, they have an adult uh, daughter who has some intellectual special needs. And the, and the Lord has burdened their heart for adults with special needs in our culture. One of the things that happens in our culture is that when you grow up in your mom and dad's house and you have special needs and your parents pass away, at that moment, if no arrangements are made for you, you become a ward of the state. And the state then will arrange for you to, you know, be taken care of by something like a foster home type system or whatever. And, there are lots of folks that just jump in on that because they want the paycheck. They're not really interested in taking good care of these folks. And so what Rich and Becky are doing is they're making these plans to start this wonderful home for adults with special needs that they'll come and be taken care of and live in community together. Guys, 
In a world that is deconstructing what it means to be human, in a world that takes human beings and just uses them, in a world that doesn't know the meaning of what it is to be human, an act like that is a prophetic act. Our whole life together is prophetic. I've watched, I love what we're doing now on Sunday mornings. We've got so many of the kids with us in this room this morning. And they're wandering around and worshiping God. Uh, our, uh, our culture systematically disregards our children. Systematically disregards our children. So what we do in the church is we lift them up and we bless them. In a few weeks, we're going to have child dedications. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take oil and we're going to make the sign of the cross on their heads. And we're going to say that you have the dignity of belonging to God, that you're part of the kingdom of God. Guys, that's a prophetic act. When we gather in this place and we don't check your political credentials when you come in the building, we don't try to figure out if you're Democrat or Republican or independent. We just hug you because you are. Do you realize that that is a prophetic act? It's all prophetic. When you stick it out in your marriage, even when it's difficult, you live up to your vow in a world that just wants to throw vows away and break promises left and right. That act is a prophetic act. What we're doing with our whole life together is we're bearing witness to Jesus. When we gather in this space, the most basic things that we do, you know, we lift up worship to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We preach the gospel. We come to the table. What are we doing? We're prophesying to the world about what is true. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to say to you that your life is prophetic. Okay, your life is prophetic. And all that you do and all that you live before the world, in the way that you conduct yourself in your job, in the way that you take care of those for whom the bottom is falling out of their life, in the way that you take care of people in your neighborhood, in the way that you steward your money, in the way that you comport yourself on social media, all of that stuff is a prophetic act. In the way that you use your money, do you know that tithing is a prophetic act? We have a world that just says, well, what you need to do with your money is just store up as much of it as you can and then use it on yourself so that you can have a happier life. And you know what the church says the best thing to do with your money is? Cast your life away. Cast your money away. Cast your resources away recklessly because you believe that in the economy of God, nothing is lost and that the kingdom is the best way to live. Do you realize the whole thing is prophetic? A whole manner of life together is prophetic. The entire manner of our lives ought to tell the world how things will be when God is all in all. Are you with me this morning, brothers and sisters? But there's a wrinkle in this that's really important to say and to notice. And with this, we're going to start pivoting in a second here into communion. But I want you to look back down at verse 7. The scripture says, Now, when these two prophetic figures, which are a symbol of the whole church, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will what? And, and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Here's the picture that I need you to see. And I know this is depressing and I've got encouragement coming for you in just a second here. But these two prophetic figures, they stand in the midst of the public square 
And they lift up their voices for the truth of God in a world that knows not God. And what happens to them? Yeah, it's not a rhetorical question. They're killed. Who does this sound like? It sounds like Jesus. God of very God, God incarnate, walks among us, and his ministry does not end in what we would judge on the human level to be success, does it? What does it end in? And, and how, how do the lives of these two prophetic figures end? In failure. <laughs> Positive and encouraging, New Life East. Welcome to church this morning. We have made, now here's where I'm going to liberate you. We have made an idol out of success in the church. How do you know that God is with you? How do you know that God is moving in your ministry? How do you know that God has really called you? How do you know that God is really at work through your life? Well, there's visible, tangible fruit. There's success everywhere. How, how do you know if God's called you to plant a church? Well, five years later, it's a really big church. How do you know if God's called you to a preaching ministry? Well, 10 years later, everybody knows about you. How do you know if God's really called you to this special project to serve these people? Well, you get several years into it, and it's really working well, baby. How do you know if God's really called you into this marriage? Well, it's flourishing, obviously. How, how do you know if God's really called you as a parent? Well, all of your children are really happy and wonderful, and they serve the Lord in a real nice and good way. Hallelujah. Amen. Revelation chapter 11 says that that's wrong thinking. It is no part of the Christian vocation to try to manage success. It's no part of the Christian vocation to try to manage success. We are not in control of whether or not our efforts for Jesus are going to bear all kinds of good fruit by some kind of human standard. We're not in control of that. What we are called to do is we are called to give ourselves unhesitatingly and unreservedly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether we succeed on the human level or whether we fail is not for us to predetermine. Can I get an amen? And there are too many of us that are following Jesus and we feel as though we're failures and it's not working and God is mad at us. I did everything that I could possibly do for my kids, but they still aren't following Jesus. Something must be wrong with me. I did everything that I could possibly do to make sure that my marriage would succeed. I went to all the conferences. I read the books. I fasted and I prayed for my spouse. And still they don't follow Jesus. Something must be what? Wrong, wrong with me. Uh, the Lord put it on my heart to do X, Y, and Z. And I followed him faithfully. I cashed in everything to do this thing. And it didn't really work out the way that I thought it was going to work out. Something must be Revelation chapter 11 says that something is not wrong with you. Revelation chapter 11, I am preaching to somebody this morning. Revelation chapter 11 says that something is profoundly right with you if that happens. It is no part of the Christian vocation to try to manage our success. Our vocation is to die gloriously as Jesus did. And what we do then is we entrust the results of our life. We entrust success to the hands of of God. Look down at verse 11. After three and a half days. Guys, the two witnesses were not just dead. They were very dead. As Jesus was not just sort of knocked unconscious and he was kind of resting in the tomb. He was dead, dead. 
very, very dead. But after three and a half days, the breath of life, the spirit of God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And like Jesus ascended, so they also ascend. They go up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies look on. And look at this in verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified. And what happened? They gave glory to the God of heaven. It is not until the church begins to die gloriously in obedience to Jesus that anybody in Revelation is converted. Guys, this is our call to take our lives and to fling them wildly into Jesus Christ and to let God, by the power of his spirit, raise us up from the dead and use that as a witness to the nations. Some of you in this room this morning, you feel as though you're a glorious failure for Jesus. And I'm telling you that your life is a sweet-smelling offering before him. And God is using your life to win the nations to him. You don't have to manage your success. You don't have to try to mitigate failure. You have one responsibility, one responsibility, to follow Jesus. Let's stand this morning and prepare our hearts for communion. Oh, we worship you. We worship you, we worship you, we worship you. Jesus, now would you begin to strengthen our hearts, strengthen our hearts. Boy, some of you were walking in this morning and you really did feel as though, like it was heavy on you this morning. You just felt like you'd done everything that you could possibly do and it wasn't working out the way that you wanted it to work out. And Jesus is blessing you this morning. He's encouraging you this morning. And some of you, I just also get the sense that some of you this morning, the Lord is course correcting you. You've been following Jesus, but you've also been baking in kind of success management into that. And you know it because it's causing you anxiety in the mind and in the body and the spirit. And there's not freedom in following Jesus. You're being invited this morning to let that go, okay, to lay that down. We're coming now, as we come to the table, we're coming back to the simplicity and to the purity of our faith. That what we are called to do is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And God, by his spirit, he's restoring us to that vocation this morning. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to take this prayer of repentance on your lips. Say it with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And so, Lord Jesus, we receive your forgiveness this morning. 
and we receive your freedom this morning. And we believe that the scripture is right when it says that if anybody is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Thank you that this morning you are making us once again your people in you, filling us with your spirit, strengthening us for obedience. We thank you for all of these things. Now, as we begin to gear our hearts towards the table, we ask that you would ready us to receive the life of Jesus Christ afresh. Granted, we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, we're going to sing this song of worship and then I'm going to lead us to the table in just a few minutes. Let's sing together.
Brothers and sisters, <laughs> here it is. Here is our vocation. Here is our strength. Here is our life. Here is our calling. It's Jesus Christ. That what we do is we live Jesus Christ and we die Jesus Christ and everything for us is Jesus Christ. And so we remember that on the night that he was betrayed after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. Let's break it together. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, the Lord, we believe that bread and cup are more than bread and cup because you have made them more than bread and cup. But you have taken these elements as you have taken our lives and you have filled them with the mystery and the magnitude of your presence that we'd all be caught up in the body of Christ. So this morning we pray that you would feed us and strengthen us at the table. We pray that your own faithful obedience unto death would make our faithful obedience unto death possible. We pray that you would defeat in us rebellion and anxiety and fear. We pray that you'd locate us once again in your love and mercy. Granite, we're asking in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, let's take the bread together. Thank you, Jesus. And the cup. <laughs> and now let's sing our doxology together as we close. Lift up your voices in praise. Praise God from whom Blessings flow. Come on, lift up your voices, saints. That's right. Hallelujah.
now lift up your hands. Receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'm going to invite for the first time in a long time, I'm going to invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we want to pray for you. Those of you that worshiped with us online, we're so grateful that you were with us today. Brothers and sisters, go in God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace. You're loved. We'll see you next week.